four of us. I, one morning I had an appointment in Gundoon Street, which is the main street of Gladstone. So I was there, I drove uh, to Gundoon Street and I had an idea that I'd park behind Gundoon Street, behind all the shops there, and I pulled into the car park and I saw a car park, wouldn't you believe it, really close to the buildings. And so I, I uh, kind of, it's an upward ramp there and I drove up and I parked there and I'm just sitting in the car um, and I'm just um, getting my things in order to go to this appointment. I think it was um, some documentation and this... And as I'm sitting there, I hear this knocking on my window of my driver's side. And um, I thought, oh, someone's trying to talk to me. And so I, um, I wound down the window, it, um, and this lady was more than talking to me. She was angry. She was angry with me. <laughs> it may come to a shock to you. Sometimes people get angry <laughs> with you. And, and, I, and, I'm, and she is just giving me both barrels real quick for about 15 to 20 seconds, and she's saying this. She says, don't you, dare, don't you even care? This is my car park. And I'm thinking, have we got names on car parks now? <laughs> These are the things you think. Um, and she says, this is my car park, and you've parked in it, and, pe- and don't you realize this is a disabled car park? And don't you realize people like me get uh, really affected when you don't allow us, and you park in our spots? And she's... And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. And so, uh, you know, I'm the, I was basically doing the male thing. You know, not, I was kind of hearing her, but I was also thinking of an answer to give her. That's the male thing. Not a good thing to do with your wives, gentlemen. You need to listen and not give them answers. We all know that, don't you? They've already got the answer. But this lady, she was, uh, she was uh, determined to give me a piece of her mind. And so I'm thinking, hey, I would never park in a disabled car park. What made me park in this disabled car park? And then I kind of opened the door a little bit to look down because they always have an, a disabled icon on the, on the bitumen. Is that right? You know, they always have that. So I opened the door and I realized that there's a tree above the car park and it's dropped all its leaves and it had obscured the the icon symbol there on the ground and I didn't see that and that's why I parked there. And when she finally had drawn breath, (laughs) I worked it through in my mind. I, I had about 20 seconds, which is quite a long time to get screamed at, to think about the answer. And so I decided to use the biblical approach, a soft answer turns away wrath. So I said, I'm sorry. Well, it's like all the redness just drained out of her face. I thought, gee, it works. <laughs> and, she, and I said to her, I'm sorry, but did you realize it, this tree has dropped all the leaves? And I did not see that icon on the bitumen. And I apologize. I'm actually happy just to back out and you can come in. And she says, no, she kind of settled down a bit, and she says, no, it's okay, I've parked already now. And, and then she went on to tell me, um, tell me about all the people that are upset her because they classed her as not really being a disabled person, but clearly she was because she walked with an incredible limp and a cane uh, really badly. And, and, and actually, she told me then... It was just amazing how she'd placed me in the same camp as everybody else that she was upset with about this. Isn't that interesting? Placed me. She had assumed something about me that I'm, you're just like the rest. You don't care about disabled people. And I truly have never parked in a disabled car park in my life except that one time. And so when I kind of gave her a soft answer and apologized, she started to talk to me. She said, did you know 
One day, someone put a note on my windscreen and said, you are not disabled. Stop parking in this car park. Oh, I thought, oh, that's terrible. Trying to be really sympathetic. I was just trying to really... And, and, and so we started this conversation. I want to say, isn't it interesting, but before I said sorry, she had assumed the kind of person I was. Assumption can get us into a lot of trouble. Uh, assumption is like a roadblock uh, that stops you from moving forward. Assumption is the thing that you think will happen because that has been your experience, your, your, uh, you, you know, your background in life, and you assume, well, this is how it's going to roll, or this is how it's going to unfold, or this is the type of person, I, if this person does this, that's the type of person they must be when it's not always the case. Assumption is a terrible thing to live your life by, and I want to talk to you today about assumptions because I want us to shatter the assumptions in our lives. And, you know, when this lady finally realized uh, that, you know, what, I'd made a genuine mistake, thankfully, she walked away uh, not angry, and thankfully, uh, I think we'd made a connection. <laughs> it was really good. I've never met her again, but, you know, God knows why that. Maybe one day I will. Maybe she'll walk through the doors of that church. And I said, remember the day that... Uh, we won't talk about that. <laughs> But uh, it was an interesting start to the day. Assumptions. You know the Bible actually says in Proverbs 3.7, in the Message Bible, okay? So it's fairly paraphrased, but in the Message Bible it says, don't assume that you know it all. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7, don't assume that you know it all. Run to God, run from evil. What's that saying? Well, it's, 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 the verse is saying, stop assuming about life and how you think things should be done. And if you were the ruler of the universe, this is how it should roll. Because sometimes the way that I've thought that things should be done and the way that actually it goes is two different things. And it, you know, so the Bible says, don't assume that you know it all. And, it, and, and the question I asked myself when I read that verse is, how can I not assume that, that I know it all? It says, run to God. In other words, humble yourself just enough to realize that assumptions are based on a, on a belief that we think we know everything, which is not true. We don't know everything about every situation in life. Uh, and, and often when we, but you know, run to God. Why would we ever run to God? Is because we, God is infinite. Guess what? He knows it all. I'm finite. I don't know it all. So we want to talk this morning um, about assumptions and sometimes in our life, in regards to God, what we think we know and what we think God doesn't know. Um, and I want to use it through the story of John the Baptist. Do you remember John the Baptist in the Bible? John the Baptist is, is, has an interesting story. Uh, John the Baptist, of course, we all know him as the guy who was the forerunner to Jesus. But did you know that his father Zacchaeus and his mother Elizabeth, before John was born... Uh, they were godly people. They were upright people. Zacchaeus worked in the, he served in the temple as a priest. And um, one day an angel comes and meets with uh, Zach, Zachariah, I should say, not Zacchaeus, Zachariah. And uh, says to Zachariah, um, you know, um, even though you're in your old age, and even though Elizabeth, your wife, has been barren for all her life, you're going to have a baby. That's good news, isn't it? That's a good day for Zach Zachariah and his wife. 
The interesting thing is, is that uh, uh, Zechariah didn't believe the angel Gabriel, and Zechariah and the angel Gabriel said, "Well, you're not going to, you're going to be mute. You're not going to talk until the baby's born. That's not a good thing for a man, is it?" Um, but sometimes that probably is good. I don't mind not just not talk. Can't get in trouble. Yeah, that's true. Um, so anyway, so Elizabeth is interesting because she finally has the baby, and they call, and they're kind of working out who we're going to call, what we're going to call this baby. And Zechariah finally gets his speech back. He says, "It's John. It's going to be John." So John is born. The interesting thing is, John, who became John the Baptist, went on to be the forerunner of Jesus. Uh, of course, he, he had an interesting lifestyle. He lived in the desert, and we'll talk about that. Uh, and, the, and there's some other interesting things that coincided with, with Elizabeth's conception and then her birth and then the um, pregnancy and birth of John because it coincided with another young lady. Elizabeth is an older lady. Mary was another young lady, and it coincided. They were relatives in some form. Mary was the mother of Jesus. That's good. <laughs> Mary was the mother of Jesus, and they were six months apart, uh, and we'll talk about that. So I want to talk to you today in regards to what we don't need to assume in regards to God. Here's the first thing in regards to this story. Out of this story, I want to bring some things. The first thing, don't assume that God will do things like you would do things, okay? It's interesting in regards to John's story, uh, if you think about um, Jesus, um, in Matthew 3, one, it says about Jesus when he was to be born that he would be called King of the Jews. Uh, in Micah, a, a little book, a little prophet, um, Micah was a prophet. In Micah 5 2, it says it was prophesied that Jesus will become a ruler. In Isaiah 9 7, it prophesied that Jesus would sit upon a throne. So you can expect the, you can understand the expectation of the Jewish people was we're going to have a king come into our kingdom. Um, because at the time, the Jewish people were under tyranny of the Roman Empire, and the Romans didn't treat the Jews so well sometimes. And so the people were thinking um, from the Old Testament as they read about this coming Messiah, this Jewish king that's going to come, uh, this ruler that is going to sit on the throne of David. You, can, you can't blame them as thinking that when Jesus arrives, he's going to be sitting on an earthly kingdom and he's going to knock out Rome, uh, get rid of the Pharisees and all their religious ways, and he's going to establish his kingdom where we're going to be his royal subjects. And uh, the interesting thing about that in relation to John is John the Baptist was the most unlikely character to, to hail in a king like that. Because John the Baptist, well, he lived in the wilderness. If a, king, if a new coming king is going to be hailed, surely it would be in the palace. Surely, surely it would be with fanfare and feasting and trumpets. And, no, John the Baptist lived in the wilderness and he ate locusts and honey folks. He was clothed in camel hair with a leather belt. He was a hermit. I mean, he was the most unlikely character. Isn't it interesting? God won't do things the way that you think he'll do things. And he didn't do it with the Jewish people that way. They probably thought, kingdom, <laughs> we're ready to take over this place. All of Israel will be given back to the Jews and uh, we'll have a grand time. But it's not going to happen that way. They might have had the kingdom year, decades and centuries ago, all of you know, Israel and all that area was theirs, but now God had a different plan. So it's interesting. Don't assume that God will do things like you would do them. John the Baptist is given the commission to prepare the way for Jesus. 
and yet he's the unlikely character to do it. Um, to make it seem uh, even more wrong, of course, John didn't even bother to go into the city and proclaim Jesus. He just stood in the desert, and wouldn't you know it, literally thousands of people came out to him. I don't know how that happened, but God orchestrated it. You know, and, and, and maybe if I was a Jewish person in those days, I too would have been thinking, well, you know, if, you know to be, Jesus to be heralded in, and, and the, the forerunner to Jesus would have to be some dignitary, some high priest, some great prophet will rise up. But no, none of those rose up. John the Baptist rose up, and he was the person God used. Most unlikely, most unlikely person. It's a mistake. It was a mistake for the Jewish people to think that God would do things like they wanted them to be done. And you know what? We can assume that if God is going to do something, then he would surely do it what, what, like I would expect. And as a result, some people maybe missed out because of what they thought about John the Baptist, or maybe they just about missed out. Have you ever had things happen to you this morning in your life that you would have never happened if you were ordering the universe? Why doesn't God look at my diary when he wants things to unfold? Have you ever thought about that? I wonder if, I, you know, if you've ever sat back and maybe missed the work of God happening in your life because you thought, well, that's not how I would do it. I almost missed something really important in my life. I was 20 years of age. And I was in this church, only about a couple of years in this church. And I remember the story folded like this. I, uh, after church one Sunday night from this church, I went with a bunch of young people, like these lovely young people here. And we went to supper at one of the Christian girls uh, who was in the church. We went to her place for supper. And, um, as we're, and there's about seven or eight of us. And we're having supper. Now, she was a Christian girl, but she was flatting with a non-Christian girl. And uh, this non-Christian girl hid herself in the room, and uh, so we're kind of having supper, but she had to come out and breathe, so she came out to get a drink of water, and as she's crossing the floor into the kitchen, I happened to notice this girl and, and thought, that girl is pretty good looking, and I kind of put it out of my mind, I'm a good young man, I shouldn't be, you know, looking, wow, 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 and, but, you know, what happened was, I've got to tell you what happened before that, so you understand what happened at that moment. Um, at the age of 20, I'd made this pact with God. I'm never going to get married, God. I'm just going to serve you. <laughs> Have you ever prayed some of those crazy prayers? You know, you often do it at car parks. God, if you just get me a car park, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. <laughs> Come on, you've done it. So I, I prayed one of those prayers in all earnestness because I just had a, a kind of a friend in this church and, and, and kind of we had, had to come to a mutual agreement that it wasn't really happening well, so we kind of separated. And, and I was like, oh God, I'm just going to serve you. I'm never going to look at another girl. I'm, never, I'm just going to serve you all. That I'm, I'll stay celebrant and unmarried. And, and then that night happened. And when I was standing there and I, I saw her, a, a thought came into my head and uh, um, I'll tell you later where I thought it come from, but it said to me, and this is the truth, word for word, that is the topic, that is the girl you could marry. And straight away, as a good young Christian man, I dismissed it and said two things. She's not even a Christian. 
Why would I marry a girl who's I know what the Word of God says, don't be unequally yoked. I know God, and straight away I dismissed it out of my brain. And second of all, I said, and God, I've made a commitment to you that I'd never marry. So it's, it's kind of, you know, I dismissed it. Seven months later, she walked through that door, and she came and stood here and committed a life to Jesus Christ. It was somewhere here. She committed a life to Jesus Christ. And, uh, and then within 24 hours, she got baptized in the Holy Spirit. I thought, oh. And then uh, several weeks later, she got water baptized. And uh, so I kind of ignored it because I'd made a pact with God. <laughs> and then my good friend kind of got friendly with her. And I thought, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> and it didn't work out with them. And I went, oh, that's okay. <laughs> And then seven months later, uh, we kind of started to talk, and we went to Bible studies and prayer meetings together, and started to go to church, and, and two years after that, I married her. <laughs> Woo! Now, the thing is, yes, that's what I said. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. But the reality is, is I'd said to God, you could never speak to me that way, God. I'd put God in a box, and if I was ordering the universe... I would have never done it that way. In actual fact, I would counsel young men and women. You know, the truth is, it doesn't happen that way. God speaks that way. But I want to tell you, in hindsight, God spoke to me because of the ridiculous prayer that I'd made to him. That's the reality. And that night, he spoke in my heart and says, that's the girl you could marry. He didn't say, I would marry. He, just, he gave me an option. <laughs> he said, that's the girl you could marry. Praise God, I did. Because it's 31 years later and we're still going okay. But I want to just say that sometimes we put God in this box. We predetermine that this is how God will do things, but determined how I would do things. And, God, and that's not necessarily the case. See, I want to just say God um, can work in mysterious ways. Would you agree? He can work in mysterious ways. Do, do you know where that phrase comes from, God can work in mysterious ways? Do you know what? It's the first line of a, it, well, it's a hymn, but it was a poem originally from an English poet called William Cowper. And, 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 and it's interesting, this story, I've I, I researched it, but William Cowper lived in the 17th century. And, and then if you just look at his lifestyle, uh, not lifestyle, sorry, his life's journey in his life story, you would see very clearly that he was the most unlikely person to say that God would work in mysterious ways. I'll give you a snapshot real quick. William Cowper was born um, in two, two parents, which is good, mum and dad, and six of his siblings died at birth. Eight children, six died. So he was, he's now seven years age. He's only, there's only one child in the family, him. His mother falls pregnant. She gives birth to his brother seven years after he was born. He's seven years of age. His brother John survives. Now there's two, but his mother dies at the age of seven. This is William Cowper. He's an incredibly famous English poet. To make matters worse, um, the interesting thing about his life is that um, after his mother died, uh, you know, he felt that very strongly. He felt you know, he's like no mother as a seven-year-old. And then he, as a young man, he studied Latin at Westminster uh, College. And because he was the youngest in that particular fraternity, and those the young men there used to bully him, 
And uh, he suffered incredibly because of that in his emotional being. Unfortunately, things didn't get any better. He grew up as a young man, and he met his cousin um, uh, Theodora, and he fell in love with her. She was a distant cousin, but this was the love of her life. They wanted to get married, but the father of Theodora said, you will not get married because you're related. And so he lost the love of his life. That caused him even greater pain, his emotional context of life. In 1763, he obtained a job as a clerk in the House of Lords in Parliament. And because he had struggled with tension and stress and anxiety, he couldn't finish the exam to, to keep the job and he lost his job. So he's not doing so well. He went into the depression in 1973. So that's 10 years after he lost his job. And one fateful night, he took a coach to the Thames River in London and his aim was to jump in the river and drown himself. He hopped out of the coach, he stood on the bank and there was a man standing there looking at him and Will Cowper says, it was as if he was on guard looking at me. I felt uncomfortable. And mind you, the tide had gone out in that particular part of the river and it was too shallow for him to drown. So he jumped back in the coach, he went home and he got a bottle of poison and he tried to put it to his lips to kill himself and it says like an invisible arm stopped him. He couldn't work it out. So finally he said, I'm going to hang myself. So he put a rope over a beam somewhere in the house he was living in. He, he hung himself there and the rope snapped. He fell to the floor and a lady who was living next door came in and said, what's the ruckus? Finally, William Palka said, I, I feel so depressed and yet I can't even kill myself. <laughs> Unfortunately, he was diagnosed as mentally ill and was incarcerated in a mental asylum for several years. That's not a good life. Would you agree? And now I want you to understand this, but something started to turn around for William Kapalka. After he recovered, thankfully, in that mental asylum, he was taken in by a Christian family called Morley and Mary Unwin, who um, saw his plight and um, graciously cared and encouraged him and let him live in their home. The Unwins, amazingly, were friends with a man called John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader for many decades, uh, taking uh, people from Africa into Europe in the slave trade, who had a revelation of God's incredible grace and love, committed his life to Christ, and John Newton written, wrote the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, it Saved a Wretch Like Me. It was about him he wrote that song, John Newton. Now, the Onion family were good friends with this um, prominent 17th century evangelist, John Newton, and, of course, William Pauker comes and sits in the meetings and gloriously commits his life to Jesus Christ. A wonderful, wonderful uh, thing is happening in his life. And then John Newton gets Cowper, realizing he's got a gift on his life, he says, write poems. And those poems become hymns. And out of all these incredible things came some incredible reflections and some incredible poems that he wrote about the thoughts and times of that day. Now, you might be asking, why did I say all of this? Well, the truth is, William Palka, Kalpa came to understand that he'd gone through all the things he'd gone through. I mean, the siblings dying, his mother dying, um, bullied as a young boy, married, lost the love of his life, uh, was sacked from his job, placed, attempted suicide three times, placed in a mental asylum. And out of all of this, we see that he then gets cared for by a Christian couple, comes to Christ, and he realizes none of it needs to be wasted because God has a plan for my life. And he writes these, this wonderful poem, and he says this, God moves in the mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, his 
He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in an unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Yea, fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye much, so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him by, for his grace. Behind a frowning, frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast. Sorry, his purposes will ripen fast. Unfolding every hour, the bud may have, may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. He wrote God is mysterious ways. And Wilhelm Palka realized that he, if he had ordered the universe, he wouldn't have ordered it that way. But all Now, God didn't necessarily do all those things to him, but what, but what happened is God used those things and turned around a man's heart to be an incredible encouragement to literally thousands of people as he wrote poems and they became hymns. Martin Luther Jr. actually quoted William Cowker and he was the, um, he was the person who mandated uh, a, a, the abolishment of slavery in America. What an, and used William Palka's um, um, words and poems and quoted him many occasions. I want to just say, if we go through life assuming that God has to do things how I would do them, maybe we'll miss the things that God is doing. John the Baptist was not the person's choice, people's choice, but he was God's choice, and hopefully not. To, and hopefully, people understood that, and I think they did. Here's the second thing this morning about what we can assume. How are we going? Okay. Don't assume, not only that God won't do the things the way you do them, but don't assume God will do things in your timing. Woo! Think of John's birth. Luke chapter 1, verse 7. Zacharias and Elizabeth were parents of John. They had a heartache. They couldn't have children. Now they get to their old age, and an angel comes along and says, you're going to have a baby. I think the first question I would have thought if I was, if I was Zachariah, we said, you could have done that 40 years ago. Come on, think about it. You know, when we were young and youthful and viral, we could have, she could have felt pregnant then. Now, I don't think Zachariah said that, but the reality is, why did God wait till she was an old woman? She'd been barren all her life, and now she's old and past the, past the, the, the ability to have children. Well, if you think about it, didn't Mary, the mother of Jesus, need a friend? Didn't didn't because Elizabeth had John six months before Mary had Jesus, and it says that uh, that Mary went to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was a wiser, older lady. Mary, it could have been something in the vicinity of fourteen or fifteen years of age, folks. And she's and Mary, come on, she was a single Jewish girl who's pregnant and expected everybody to believe that with the Holy Spirit impregnated her. I think people thought she's not only immoral, she's mentally ill. Didn't she need a friend? And she found it in Elizabeth. No one else maybe believed. I mean, even her husband-to-be had doubts. Thankfully, he was an honorable man and didn't put her away. He married her eventually. See, God's timing was perfect in this circumstance. Six months to the, probably the minute and the hour. You know, God is seldom early but never late.
I, uh, I've come to understand something. God does what he wants and he asks us to trust him. He does it in his timing. He does it and he asks us to trust him. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, Lean not unto your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Uh, notice what it says. It doesn't say discard your understanding because the Bible actually says get understanding in some instances. But it's just saying don't lean upon your understanding. Uh, and what we have to realize is that we need to be humble enough to realize that we are finite beings and we're limited by what we know of the situation, but God is not limited. He's infinite. He knows all things. And, and we can trust him in all our ways. And we can trust him that his timing on things is really good, much better than me. And it's a mistake to assume that God will do things in the way that I would do them. But also it's a mistake to think that God will do them in the time that I think he will do them. We need to be aware. So when the Bible says trust in the Lord, in the NIV, it then says straight after that, it says in, it says in NIV um, paraphrase, it says, submit to him. Trust in the Lord and submit to him. Interesting. When do we need to submit to God? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I'll tell you, when you need to submit to God, when your, his timing is not your timing. That's when you find you've got to submit to God. When your timing is not God's timing and it seems so different. <laughs> Incredible. It says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God will make everything beautiful in its time. God will make everything beautiful in its time. Let's go. Here's another thing that you don't need to assume. Don't assume that God will speak through a medium through which you approve. I'm not talking about a medium as in a fortune teller. I'm talking about the medium through which God speaks. Is that okay? He can speak through you through many things. Um, and sometimes through. God will bring wisdom to your life through places you've never expected, through circumstances that want to teach you lessons that you never thought were possible. Don't assume that God will only ever speak through what you think is appropriate, okay, for him to speak to you through. Um, think about John. There were confusion. There was confusion about who John was. Uh, in John 1, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, people came to him and said, Are you, are you, uh, are you Elijah? Oh, no, first of all, they said, are you, G are you the Messiah? Are you Christ? He says, No, I'm not. They said, Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Are you that prophet? Because Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15 said, I will, he said these words, um, There will be a prophet come just like me. And they thought, Oh, this is the prophet that Moses spoke about. And John said, No, I'm not that prophet. And once again, people looked at John and said, what right have you to be the forerunner to Christ? You're a hermit, you're dressed in camel hair, you eat locust and honey. Man, have a shave and grow up. He was unlikely, wasn't he? But it isn't interesting, God spoke through the most unlikely meeting. Actually, God made a... God made a um, he, he, he kind of made a habit of doing that. When they herald Jesus' birth, who did they use? Shepherds. Do you know shepherds were the lowest of the low on the employment rating and rank? And yet God used shepherds to proclaim the coming of the birth. Isn't it interesting? He uses the most unlikely mediums to produce, uh, to share his incredible messages with you. And if you lock yourself in that God, uh, this is my acceptable source of information from God, how God's going to speak to me, you may find that you might miss it because... Uh, we need to be careful. Last weekend, I'll just share, share not last weekend, three weeks ago, I was, uh, had one of, the, one of those um, incredible moments that I think only ever happens to me and never happens to anybody else. Um, I, was, uh, I went with Michelle, my wife, and, and Lydia, 
and we went uh, to the art gallery just off Gundur. I parked in one of the side streets there and uh, Lydia had a, a portrait or uh, she'd done, so we went to look at it and look at everybody else's um, um, art pieces. And so we spent about 35 minutes in there. I parked in the side street just opposite the car wash and I noticed uh, there was a car park spare really close because Lydia was on crutches in those days and I was trying to get as close as I can to the, the art gallery. She didn't have to go so far. Um, and so I parked behind a car with a trailer. Now the trailer, understandably, the guy had parked but his trailer protruded into that car park by about a foot. But I thought, that's okay, I'll just park behind. I can squash in there. So I parked really close. Have you got the picture? So we went to the art gallery, 35 minutes later I came out and uh, I didn't see the note on my windscreen straight away. I, we drove actually at the Fresh Fix and we hopped out of the car and then I saw it because uh, we were going to have lunch together as a family and um, then Michelle and Lydia went and I picked the note up off the uh, windscreen and I, it was an A4 page and, and uh, it was the most foul language I'd kind of read for a little while. And I'm used to foul language. I worked at the power station for a little while. Um, and it said, you are the biggest person I've ever met. And I thought, you haven't met me. <laughs> anyway, he then went on to say some incredible things. He said, how in the world do you, have you survived, you idiot? I thought, first of all, it stunned me. And, and I started to think, what have I done? And, I'm trying to, and as a man, I'm trying to think, what have I done for him to be so, so vile? I felt almost, I felt like violated, you know, in the comments he'd made about me. And he used some pretty heavy words. I thought, my, 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 what is this about? And so I, 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 I looked at it for a moment and, and uh, I thought, I've just got to, I felt offended. I felt violated. So as Michelle and Lydia walked away, I went down a path near the Centrelink there, down a path by myself with this letter. And you know what? I could have just torn it up and thrown it away and forgotten it. But you know what? I would have walked away with an offended heart and I would have walked away with that attitude and an issue still. So I went down the path and I said, God, um, almost in tears, folks, I said, God, this is... This, this is beyond what I almost can bear. Why would a person say this about me? As I started to think about it, what I think has happened, I've parked behind him. Now, there was no cars in front of him. He could have driven away. But in my absence, I think someone's come along and parked in front of him, blocked him in. He's come back to his car and thought that um, I've come up behind, there's a car in front, and I've come up behind and blocked him in. I'm the one who blocked him in when possibly it was the guy in front who blocked him in. And that's why he's so angry. I think there's probably some other things about his life he's angry about. That's not me. But anyway, that's besides the point. Uh, and, as I, and I said to God, I said to Father, I said, Father God, what? And this is what I said. What can I learn from this? Because I've learned over life that when something happens to your life, God can speak through that medium. When there's an emotional of a high or a low, God can speak to you if you're willing to listen. Isn't there still a small voice you've got to listen for? And as I stood there with the letter, God said to me, James, why are you always worried? Not always, sorry, it wasn't that. Why do you get worried about what people think of you? I said, do I? He said, yeah. Don't worry about it. I've got it. And this is an example. You didn't necessarily do all the wrong. Maybe you should have thought about not parking so close to him. And I was willing to at least admit that. But you know what? Don't let it get to you what people think. 
Because there's times when you need to proclaim the word of the Lord and the truth of God, no matter what people may think of that truth. And I started to sit there and reflect upon what God was teaching me. It was an unlikely medium that God spoke to my heart about my own personality, my own life, and my own leadership and what I needed to step up. It was unlikely, but it was a good opportunity. I think I've missed many opportunities in the past, church, to actually hear God's voice. I think we all have because we've resolved in our heart that God will only speak through this certain way. And God often wants to speak in a way that maybe we've never thought was possible. I think we understand. Let me talk about the last one and we'll finish this morning. Don't assume God will be stra- God's plans will be straightforward. Okay? Um, if it's God's will, some people say, if it's God's will, it'll all work out. Well, I, I kind of think that's kind of right. But the reality is, it's also not quite right. Because I've discovered that some people just say, oh, it's God's will. And they never put any ability or commitment or effort to actually do anything about anything in life and think, well, God will just work it out. You know, case or us. And that's not always the case. Because I've discovered we have the freedom to make choices for ourselves. God gives us that. But when you take our freedom of choices along with God's sovereignty and Him working in our hearts and meld them together, good outcomes can come. And sometimes we can think, well, I wish the plans were straightforward. I just wish they flowed properly. But it seems to be that the way God works is He works with us and not apart from us. Um, Didn't Jesus say, uh, knock and the door will be open to you? Uh, So it stands to reason that as you go through life, there are going to be some doors that are closed And you're going to have to, what? Knock. You're going to have to do something. You're going to have to apply some ability. You're going to have to make some stands or you're going to have to walk some way. So God wants you to, he wants you to be involved. They're not going to be automatic doors like at Woolworths. You just, everything, or at the the mall, everything opens up on its own uh, accord. There's times where you're going to have to knock and you're going to require, inquire. Think about John's story. I love this. John's father, Zachariah, gets a visitation from Gabriel. This barren old wife of yours is going to have a baby. Fantastic. Okay, don't believe you, God, but that's okay. Um, And guess what? The interesting thing for me is, do you realize that uh, um, in hindsight, maybe Elizabeth didn't know this, but what was the difference between uh, Elizabeth? um, The miracle was in that she could fall pregnant Um, The miracle for Mary was that she could fall pregnant without a man. It was the Holy Spirit. And yet uh, the Holy God didn't do that for Elizabeth because it says in in Luke chapter 123, it says that, uh, you've got to catch this, Zachariah, after he'd performed his duties at the temple, he went home. You got that? Uh, uh, He went home. Um, In verse 24, it then says, she conceived. I don't want to spell it out any further than that, but I just want you to understand. Verse 23, he went home. Verse 24, she conceived. There was something happened there. So we've got to understand it didn't happen like Mary. Uh, She didn't know any guy, and yet she conceived. Elizabeth um, had to go through the old process, the old methods, and uh, fall pregnant that way. And John, I think that was a miracle in itself. He was old as well. (laughs) So I can see... John's story, God reveals and does some amazing things, but he leaves some of the processes up to us. Did you hear that? 
God reveals, but he leaves some of the processes, and, it's on a, and we think, oh, and sometimes we can think, well, that doesn't seem very straightforward. How come God doesn't do the same thing for everybody? He could do it for Mary, he could do it for, why not for Elizabeth? No, God works in different ways, mysterious ways even. So it's like, it's like God <clears throat> gives you half the picture of your future, and then he asks you to join all the dots of the rest of the picture. He just gives you enough excitement, enough vision. Whoa, this could be a possibility. And then he asks for your involvement. He asks for you to step out in faith. He asks for you to do something yourself if you're going to see that involved. He said to John and Elizabeth, she's going to have a baby. No problem. Go home. Come on. And I think God wants to say to some of you, there's a miracle on the way. There's, there's a, it's not going to be all worked out like you think. God's not going to throw it into your lap. You just need to sometimes go home. You know, you just need to go and do the next step. Um, I love what the Word of God says. It says in Psalm 37 verse 3, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Uh, can you see what God orders? He orders your steps. So if you want God to order things in your life, you have to take some steps. Interesting thing is, we can say to God, um, uh, you get everything in my life ordered, and then God, I will take some steps. And God says, no, that does not how it works. He says, I don't order everything so you can take steps. I order your steps as you take them. I'll say that again. I don't order everything so you can take steps. I order your steps as you take them. There's a difference, isn't there? What would God be asking of you? You think, well, this is not, this is not kind of how is this going to work? This doesn't seem normal. It's, it, everything's not thrown in my life. Think God, don't assume that it's all going to be just God wants you to do something. He wants, your faith to, he wants your faith to rise. It's amazing that God made it possible for Elizabeth, a barren, an old lady to fall pregnant, but God didn't actually make her pregnant. Zacchaeus, her husband, was involved in that. So God makes a way where there's no other way. How are you going? I'm tired. <laughs> Conclusion, don't assume that God will do things like you would do things. Don't assume God will do things in my timing. Don't assume that God will speak through a medium from which you approve. And don't assume that God's plans will be straightforward. Can I have the attendance? Because we're just going to have communion to finish this morning in the moments we've got left. Come and share. Take communion. That'd be great. Is that Okay. We're going to share just for another three or four minutes in relation to this incredible event around Jesus. Do you know, I've kind of hinted on it already, but people thought that Jesus uh, was going to establish his kingdom on earth. Some people thought that. He's, going to he's a king. He's king of the Jews. He's going to establish. They even wrote over his cross, king of the Jews. Almost as a, uh, as a way to mock him. It was a way to mock him because he thought he was going to... They thought, even the, the uh, Romans and the Pharisees thought, oh, he was going to be king of the Jews. He didn't make it. We nailed him. We killed him. We got rid of him. This is Jesus. They assumed too much, didn't they? They assumed that Jesus was dead and buried. They assumed a lot of things about Christ. They assumed, some people assumed that Jesus would set up an earthly kingdom, but he didn't do that. Through his death and his then resurrection, we see what happened is he set up a kingdom 
in the hearts and lives of men and women down through the centuries to even today because you're, the, the kingdom of God is in you. And Jesus established that. He didn't establish an earthly kingdom. We're his earthly kingdom, our lives, our hearts. And the plan was for Jesus, um, contrary to what people thought, was to actually, the, God's plan was for Jesus to die on a cross. And that cross um, was a place where he'd suffer, his blood would be shed, his body would be broken. The good news is, of course, um, in the midst of that, he then rose again, victorious over death. But that across, people assumed that once, you know, they thought if Jesus hadn't gone to the cross, if, if they thought, well, Jesus will just set up his earthly kingdom, and if he hadn't gone to the cross and he hadn't died, there would be no forgiveness of sins, would there? We'd live in our guilt today. We'd have an opportunity to receive this incredible message of hope and life. If Jesus hadn't died and rose again, there'd be, um, if he hadn't rose, there'd be no opportunity for us to rise out of our past and us to rise out of our sin and us to rise out of our destructive ways in our past. But Jesus was the forerunner, in a sense, to us because he died once and for all. He shed his blood. And Jesus, before he was crucified, he gathered his disciples for a last supper or a last meal. And you can picture the scene. They're all reclining at a table. And Jesus took this bread and he broke it. And as he broke it, it was symbolic of his body. Now, they didn't quite understand that at the time. But he said, as he broke that bread, he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. He didn't do it to please just his father. He didn't do it so he could have a great time on the cross. You know, it wasn't that exciting. He did it for you. And notice he said for you. He did it for all of us. His body was broken for all of us. And he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Would you eat and take a piece of this bread in remembrance of Christ dying for you? My your body. And then he took this cup after supper. It was, a, I don't know, probably a wooden cup. Some call it the Holy Grail these days. And he put some grape juice or wine in there. And he said, this cup represents my blood. How does it represent your blood? Well, he said, you know, it's a new promise. In this cup, as you drink it, it's the new covenant or the new promise. He said, the old promise, the old covenant was that someone's blood had to be shared for your sins to be forgiven. I mean, we live in a society today where, you know, if you do the crime, do the crime you're going to do the time. Someone has to pay for it. The wonderful thing about Christ is when we come to him, he paid for it. We're forgiven. He copped it. We're set free. He forgives us. See, the blood, there's power in his blood. And, and what they used to do, of course, as most of us would be aware, that they used to take animals and the blood was shed on the altar in the temple. And the forgiveness of sins is for everybody. They used to do that several times a year for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus comes along and says, once and for all, sins are forgiven. I'm going to do it once. I'm not going to die more than once. I die, I'm going to rise again, and you'll be forgiven. You can come to me, ask for my forgiveness, ask for my mercy, and you will receive it from God as you receive Jesus Christ into your life. He says, this is my cup, which, um, this is my blood, which is shed for you. Drink this, he said, in remembrance of me. What a wonderful Savior. And so Jesus instigated a time for all eternity. I mean, this is like 2,000 years ago, folks. 
and we're still doing it. Why? Because it's just a tradition? No, because it's real. Jesus Christ has died, and there's still people who are coming to Christ because of what he did. God reaches out his love and hands, extend his hands to us. He says, come on, partake. My body was broken, my blood was shed, and I want you to remember today what I've done. I want you to renew your response and commitment to me today. I think every time we have communion, we can do that. Where we say, I, Jesus, I just thank you that you died for me. I thank you that you forgive me. Because the truth is, I fail every day. Not massive failures, but I, I do little things that aren't right. I can come to him and just ask for forgiveness and live free and live in God and live humbly with my God. Can we stand this morning? Do you have your cup? This, this piece of biscuit is our preferred choice to represent that bread, that, that first supper that Jesus had with his disciples it's convenient. And I don't think the, this is, is the issue as much as our heart towards how we eat it. it, it whether it's biscuit or bread or whatever it is, it, it maybe could be a piece of fruit, but you know, your heart is to remember that his body was broken. And this cup, it's just grape juice. And once again, it's not the power in this grape juice, it's the power in our heart of what he did for us when he shed his blood. That's the power, remembrance and thanking him. So together to this morning, I'm just going to pray, and then I want you to eat and drink at your convenience together, remembering Christ. So, Father, today, we thank you for the reality of Jesus Christ. We thank you that your body was broken, your blood was shed. And today, we can't replicate what happened in that first supper, but in our hearts, we do want to just say, we want to remember you and thank you, and not just rush off into every day and just doing our own thing, thinking I've got my world sorted out, but we've got to trust you. Not assuming that our life is all set, but trusting in you. And Father, as we come, we remember and we thank you today. What a powerful example you've given us to remember what you did for us, Jesus. And we thank you today. Amen. Let's eat and drink in remembrance of what Christ's done for us. Come on, let's just be thankful. Come on, let's just 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 reflect. Let's just be thankful.